This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this afternoon's Festival of Dangerous Ideas session, The Propaganda Machine with Dee Madigan. I'm Michael Williams, I'm the director of the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne, and I'm breaking things at the lectern already because that's how dangerous we like things to be here. Excuse me. It may go horribly wrong now. Uh, that I've dropped that. Uh, look, when it comes to propaganda machines, there's no more pervasive, no more lasting propaganda machine than the idea of the nation and national identity. It's a propaganda machine that tells us that we're Australians, and that means we're an egalitarian society, where the society of the fair go, where uh, equality rules supreme. Uh, until relatively recently, it told us also that we were a land built on the basis of terra nullius a fact that we know to be the worst kind of propaganda machine of all. We're on the land of the Gadigal people in the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present and their elders of other communities who may be with us today. For me, an acknowledgement of country is in part an acknowledgement that the moral and legal implications of invasion remain unresolved to this day. Here's a dangerous idea. There's never been a more exciting time to be an Australian. And I know this to be true because I feel it in my heart and because I've been told it repeatedly again and again and again. Uh, as I march into the future excited about the prospect of jobs and growth, I know, <laughs> I know that I should be excited because very smart people tell me. I don't know about you, but I flip from channel to channel and I watch endless panel shows of people trying to divine what's going on. And at the end of it, I feel I've been told less than ever before. I have no idea what is going on in this country around me. And then occasionally a voice cuts through the nonsense, a kind of clarion call of insight and wisdom and wit and charm. And inevitably that voice is the voice of Dee Madigan when she crops up. Uh, Dee is a high school teacher by trade. She joined the world of advertising in 1996 and since doing so uh, has earned the title of Australia's Poet Laureate of Tampon Ads. Um, her campaigns included some of the world's biggest, HSBC, Powerade, Commonwealth Bank, Diet Coke, J&J, Rexona, Nestle, but she's also worked extensively with governments of all different stripes. Uh, she's worked with the National Heart Foundation, the Cancer Council, the Australian Breast Cancer Institute and the UNHCR and worked on 10 election campaigns. So she's a person who can tell us a great deal about the belly of the beast that is the propaganda machine. She's also the author of The Hard Sell, a contributing... I'm holding that up the right way, that's good. A contributing author on mother morphosis and perspectives on change and she also runs her own ad agency which is called Campaign Edge. She's going to talk to us for about half an hour now and then you'll get a chance to ask questions of her and we might have some chance of getting to the truth. Please join me in welcoming Dee Madigan. Thank you. Hi, and thanks for, for coming this, um, to this. I thought um, I'll give you a little bit of background about myself and why I'm here talking about propaganda. Um, as you mentioned, I, I was a teacher by trade, but I'm, I'm the daughter of Irish parents, and um, in the Irish tradition, you, we always grew up knowing the power of words, and I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I fell into teaching. It wasn't anything I particularly wanted to do. 
And while I was teaching, I was working at the Clock Hotel in Surrey Hills, which before they did it up was a real um, interesting place. Um, a lot of advertising people used to drink there because I suspect it's where they could score the best Coke. Um, a lot of them tried to talk me into advertising and I said no, and I used to call them artistic prostitutes. Then I got sick of being poor. And um, I didn't particularly like teaching, so I did a course called Award School, and if you graduated in the top 10, then you got an automatic job placement, which I did. And so for about 10 years, I worked in major ad agencies, and it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. When you're young, you're earning a lot of money, and you're travelling all over the world, and I really enjoyed it. But it started to get to the point where I felt increasingly uncomfortable with what I was doing, as if I was sort of basically convincing people to buy shit they didn't need, couldn't afford, and often making themselves feel bad about themselves to do so, particularly with women's stuff. And when you're a female creative in an ad agency and there's any sort of chick product, you get the brief. And if you look at most advertising aimed at women, it really does prey on our insecurities. Um, thanks to Gruen, I'd sort of got a bit more of a profile and I was writing um, about politics a lot. And again, growing up with Irish parents, politics was very important in our house. They were always holding fundraising nights for the poor people of Ireland. And I'm pretty sure the money wasn't always going to food and clothes. <laughs> so politics was something I'd always been passionate about. And um, I'd sort of got a chance um, to do an election campaign. I'd done lots of government campaigns before. I'd actually done Tony Abbott's um, job network campaign. And bizarrely, he actually was quite a reasonable person in person, as opposed to Kevin Rudd, but more about that later. <laughs> Um, I got a chance to do an election campaign. It was a god-awful campaign. We got smashed, but I got hooked. Um, since then, I've done... The, I'm currently working on my 10th campaign. Um, I was the creative director on the 2013 federal campaign and also on the 2015 Queensland campaign. That was particularly satisfying because even though Campbell Newman was unpopular the Labor brand was still really damaged and at the beginning of the campaign no one knew who Anastasia Palaszczuk was and, and Newman had called a snap election and in four weeks we managed to get her from unknown to preferred premier and get asset sales which we knew we had to get to the top. Um, it was sitting at the fifth most important issue for people and we knew our only chance of winning was to get it to the top and we managed to do that in four weeks so that was particularly satisfying and knocking Campbell Newman out of his seat was the icing on the cake. <laughs> um, I've just finished the Northern Territory election campaign. I flew back last Sunday. It was always going to be a win, but um, the expectation was so high that there's all that pressure to meet the expectation. But again, I gave myself the added sort of task of seeing if I could knock Adam Giles off his seat, and I did. <laughs> um, when you're creative director on a, an election campaign, what you do is you're responsible for the paid media and usually the social media as well. Um, you don't, I don't differentiate between online or TV and whatever. They're different platforms and you utilise the native attributes of those platforms, but basically every touch point feeds into a sort of an overarching narrative and you can control the look and the feel and what happens in the ads and things like that. So you could say that my job is primarily in the area of propaganda. Um, so we should start by having a look at what is propaganda. Oh, my God, you broke it. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> oh, no, we're up. Okay. So this is kind of interesting because it's information, especially of a biased or misleading nature, used to promote a political cause or point of view. Biased and misleading are two completely different things. I would say that any advertising 
is biased. And usually it's actually confected bias. You know, you're making, you're selling something and making it seem better than it is, even if it isn't. And you use tricks like, I remember working on a certain tampon brand and the line was, no other tampon gives you better protection. If you think about it, no other tampon gives you worse protection either. It's a complete parity claim. But that's what you do in advertising. You, you, you use words to make you know, your product seem more than it is. Um, with election advertising, absolutely it's biased. Of course it is. But in, for me, it's, um, it's an OK because it's a bias that you actually believe in. You wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't do this job for the money, believe me. Um, so when I think about it, it really comes down to this. Whether it's propaganda or persuasion, it just depends which side you're on. You know, what they say is obviously spin and propaganda, and what we say is the truth. Although the truth, of course, probably lies somewhere between those things. And speaking of the truth, there is currently no truth in advertising rules in federal elections. Um, it was actually brought in in 1984, and it lasted for six months. Um, because the committee found that political advertising involves concepts, ideas, policies and images often contested by the opposing party, which cannot be subjected to a test of truth, truth itself being inherently difficult to define, which, of course, you know, actually makes sense. Um, truth as a concept isn't black and white. You know, what we say is true, they will say is false. And the Advertising Standards Bureau is an industry-funded, self-regulated group who frankly didn't want to be responsible for making a call in the middle of an election campaign deciding what is true and what is not. There'd be accusations of political bias no matter what way you go about it and um, a minefield of vexatious claims and frankly the group said, no way, we're not touching it. Um, South Australia, bizarrely, or not bizarrely, but actually does have a truth in advertising and it has survived um, court cases. So it is doable, just no one particularly wants to do it. There is a, um, an organised... Any ad that runs on TV has to pass a thing called CAD. And normally it's... Um, if you're making a product claim, you say something's got 25% more power, you have to substantiate it. But when it comes to political advertising, um, CAD only, um, will only look at whether the ad is defamatory or whether claims against the person have no substance. Um, and that's the only sort of thing. And... To be honest, most election ads go to character anyway. They kind of go there, but CADs, I've never had anything refused from CAD. Sometimes you need to make some small tweaks, but generally everything's OK. Um, there was one case that um, went to court, but with defamation, it doesn't happen in the election campaign. It, you know, you go through a whole court process. It happened the year after. It was 2012. Ted Bailey sued the ALP campaign director for an ad that implied that as um, the principal of a real estate company, Bailey had profited from Kennett's sales of hospitals and schools. And in the end, it was settled out of court with an apology, no damages or costs. So as you see, um, so, you know, there isn't anyone out there sort of checking everything you do. But having said that, <laughs> people don't believe this, but you don't actually set out to lie. You really don't. Um, because it's um, it's an own goal. Contested claims are okay. That's what an election is about, essentially. But um, a blatant lie ends up just hurting you far more than it does your opponent. Um, prior to the 2007 election, Jackie Kelly's husband was caught handing out bogus leaflets, falsely claiming to be from the Islamic Federation of Australia, um, that said that said Labor wanted our Muslim brothers forgiven for the Bali bombings and wanted to, you know, build mosques everywhere. The fact that Allah Akbar was spelt incorrectly should have been a clue. Um, the backlash was huge and was considered to have um, an enormous effect on the decrease in ethnic votes across, 
um, Sydney, Western Sydney, and also contributing to John Howard losing his seat. So in terms of, you know, where you go, um, I, I use this one as an example because Campbell Newman said, well, we're not selling off the assets, this ad is a lie. Technically, it was a 99-year lease. And so you, could, you could argue it both sides. But what you do is you give it to, sort of to the general public. You know, you give it the pub test. And the general public knows that if you sell off something for 99 years, by the time you get it back, it's worth bugger all because no company who's, you know, leased an asset for 99 years spends a great deal on looking after it in those final 10 years. So to all intents and purposes, it's a sell-off. And the public bought that. So it's one of those things where you can sort of say, look, you could argue it both ways. Ultimately, it's up to the public whether they believe it or not, and thank God they did. Um, again, with Medicare versus Medi-Scare, um, you know, we had Turnbull saying, well, it's a Medi-Scare, we weren't looking at privatising it. You know, they'd spent $10 million looking at privatising the payment system, and he said, well, that's just the payment system. If you think about it, Medicare is a payment system. That's kind of what it is. And there was also enough um, things that had happened, like the GP co-payment and things like that, to make it real. And this is the thing with when you're doing any kind of scare campaign, you can't confect it out of completely nothing. Campaigns work when you harness something that's actually existing out there that people already believe. Whether it's true or not, it has to work off existing stuff. No ad is powerful enough to manufacture something out of nothing. Um, when you're talking about propaganda, you would think that it would be easier to prosecute stuff that happens in the future because it's... Um oh, something's fallen off. Is that still working? OK, cool. Um, because you can sort of say, well, this is going to happen, and someone say, well, no, that's going to happen. But even the past is subject to what we would call, I guess, propaganda. So if you look at, say, in 2013, um, Labor tried to um, prosecute the fact that they had managed the GFC really well, but the um, public out there never believed it because the Labor didn't sell it at the time because it was seen as a rut achievement. When Gillard took over, instead of Labor sort of talking up their handling of the GFC, they talked it down. And then three years later, they couldn't talk it up anymore because the Liberal Party owned that narrative about economic competence. The same with the um, building the education revolution. I don't know how many people have said, oh, yeah, but, you know, there was that school that got, you know, two libraries. Never happened, didn't matter. That was kind of the thing that was out there in people's minds. And, and, um, and as any student of history knows, sources are just, you know, can be just as biased um, and, and the way they view history isn't necessarily how it happened. Um, I'm going to talk about a little bit about how um, you do, sort of where you start with when you're doing an election campaign, and that is to treat a, a political party like a brand, and the politicians hate this. They go, we're not a brand, because they think a brand is all about the selling, but a brand isn't. A brand is actually um, a promise kept. And a brand isn't what you say, it's not who you say you are, it's who your target market thinks you are. A good brand is a promise, a great brand is a promise kept. And this is your starting point. You look at the strengths and weaknesses of your party and you look at what the, part, uh, what the public thinks about that and you look at the policies that you've got and you try to work out a way to communicate those in a way that's going to cut through and make people basically vote for you in the end. Now, my art director has over-art directed everything, which means I'll be...
bless his little heart. The great ad man David Ogilvy once said, people don't read ads, they read what interests them, and sometimes that happens to be an ad. You have to engage people's attention. People see 5,000 ads a day, and this is on top of their social media feeds, their Facebook posts and whatever. No one's actually obliged to look at an ad, and particularly an election ad, no one wants to see it. Um, I get clients say, oh, we'll, we'll make this video and we'll upload it on YouTube. It's like, well, good luck with that. 6,000 hours worth of YouTube are uploaded every 60 seconds and you're competing against porn and lolcats. So you have to do it in a way that is interesting. And, and this is where the creative director often um, <laughs> has robust discussions with um, the campaign director because often they're in the party sort of mode and they're like, no, we'll just say this and, and, and people will, will listen to this. And you're like, well, no, because you can say everything you want in an ad, but if they're actually not watching the ad, you're wasting your time and money. So it's about making it interesting. But all elections start with a slogan. And the amount of time and effort that goes into this slogan, most of which are so batshit, boring, unmemorable, is unbelievable. Um, because often they try to be really rational as well. They go, like, D, it needs to say this and this and this and this. But if you look at successful slogans, they're like, is Donnie's good? Um, <laughs> you know, which on its own, you think doesn't mean anything at all. It's when you build a campaign around it that all of a sudden, you know, it cuts through. So slogans generally are really terrible, but there have been some fantastic ones. Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, this was a great one done by Saatchi's um, in London for the Conservative Party. You know, Labor isn't working and um, certainly um, is considered one of the better uh, slogans of history. Now, this one was a great one. This wasn't actually their slogan until 1990, even though it was an off-the-cuff mark um, by Don Chip in, at a media conference in 1980. And um, where it works is it fed into voters' distrusts of the main parties and kind of encapsulated... Enca encapsulated the Democrats' um, sort of brand promise to be the moral guardians of the Senate. And of course the word bastards had massive cut through. Um, however, this slogan was actually used against themselves in the 2001 election by the Greens because the Dems were seen as being too cosy with the coalition. They passed through some fairly controversial legislation. So the Greens used the slogan um, as, a as their own platform into the Senate, which was keep the Democrats honest. And you actually do think about that when you're coming up with slogans, you think, how can the other side play with it? Because play with it, they will. In 1964, Barry Goldwater, who was a little bit trigger happy, um, once joked about dropping a nuclear bomb on the men's room of the Kremlin. Um, his slogan was, in your heart, you know he's right, to which the Dems counter slogan, in your guts, you know he's nuts, held a lot more sway. <laughs> And in Australia in 1990, the Liberal Party's slogan was, the answer is liberal, to which Bob Hawke replied, it must have been a stupid question. <laughs> um, in the 2013 campaign, my slogan was, if he wins, you lose, which is sort of consumer area, what's in it for you? Unfortunately, he did win, but to be honest, by the end of the campaign, not even I wanted to vote for Kevin Rudd. Um, this was one of the best slogans as well, just so simple. We now know that L could also stand for lunatic. <laughs> and this is one of my favourites. This was actually from the 1940s. It was a Republican candidate, Wendell Wilkie, against Franklin Roosevelt, who was standing for the third time, and it just shows that, you know, they had a sense of humour even back then in terms of political stuff. Um, negative slogans are much easier than positive slogans, both because 
the broad aims of most parties are vaguely sort of the same. This is the most famous one. The slogan itself wasn't particularly new. In fact, it was pretty close to Menzies' 49 slogan, which was it's time for a change. But what it did do was harness the mood for social change at that time, and you sort of you know, had the ad with the, with the um, jingle in it and whatever. So it wasn't the slogan itself. Again, it was the slogan working in context of a whole campaign. Um, this was a great slogan because it's almost designed to be sort of a motivational chant. It works on so many different levels. Yes, we can do this. Yes, we can do this. Yes, we can do this. But it also brings people in because it's about everyone taking personal responsibility for this. We can be um, the harbingers of change. We can make a difference. Um, Vote for Al Smith and make your wet dreams done. It come true. Isn't nearly as salacious as it sounds. He was anti-prohibition, but it's still a great slogan. <laughs> Um, when you can rhyme the leader's name with the number, it helps, and or cool, keep cool with Coolidge, I like Ike. Anything that sort of you know stands out, and makes people remember it, is a start. But again, you're fighting often within the party, um, who push you down very rational ways, and you end up with shit like choose real change, a stronger Australia, better future, or a new way, which I argued very strongly against because a he was a recycled leader. And B, to this whole thing about, oh, yes, a new positive way of doing politics, I knew was going to make us look ridiculous in a week and a half when we switched to an 80% negative campaign. Um, once you have the slogan, you move on to the ads. And ads work. Uh, again, we make purchasing decisions emotionally. Facts aren't persuasive. The fact that we're having a climate change debate is proof about this. And this is one of the, the cases where you have more robust discussions internally. We sort of say, it needs you know, a bit of emotion, it needs an idea. It's like, no, no, newspaper clippings with facts. You're like, oh God, really? Um, if people feel, they do. And that's where the art comes in. Creativity is the art at the heart of persuasion. What I always try to do is put an idea into at least the negative ads. <laughs> Um, so in 2013, the idea I used was the spotlight mnemonic that you sort of the spotlight turning off on people because that sense of being left in the darkness was kind of what we were trying to get across that Abbott's policies would leave people literally in the dark. Um, in the recent Northern Territory election, I used crocodiles eating the um, unkept promises of the CLP because it was the Northern Territory and why not? <laughs> One of the great things with the Northern Territory as well was there was no focus groups. I could just make an ad, run the ad. It was, like, it was so much fun. <laughs> um, political ads, they try, again, you have a lot of people sort of say, the ad needs to say this, this, this and this. But what we know from, um, you know, years of marketing on, on TV is people take one thing out of an ad. And it's the tennis ball analogy. If you throw someone one ball, they'll catch it. If you throw them five, they'll catch none. Um, so, say with the asset sales, it's choosing the one thing with Medicare, choosing the one thing and making that the focus of the ads. Um, words matter, obviously. The ancient Greeks used to employ um, sophists. Today we use copywriters. We know that certain words are loaded. Um, in an election campaign, it's a budget crisis, a debt emergency. Um, uh, the cuts are savage. Um, the boat arrivals are illegal. No, they're not, but that's what, you know, that's exactly why they stick it on. And we're very, very careful. You, you, you craft the words you use. You spend a lot of time getting, you know, exactly the right word that will get the most emotive response out of it. Um, but as much as words matter, a picture really does paint a thousand words. Up until the 1950s, 
there were, or actually probably up until the 1960s, most advertising, particularly in the press, was these beautiful long copy ads. And they were beautifully written and they were just wonderful, but we worked out that the longer people spent um, thinking about something, the less likely they were to buy it. And that visuals circumvent critical thought and they become truth in your mind, even if they're not. Which is particularly important <laughs> when you're in this field. Um, so where possible, we try to use um, visuals. It's also... Um, helps when there's language barriers, which there often is in certain areas of, um, of Australia. Um, a, an idea can sort of connect very quickly regardless of whether English is your first language or not. What we do, we make purchases to answer a need and um, choosing which party to vote for is a purchasing decision, albeit usually a grudge decision, it is nonetheless a purchasing decision. And what we try to do is connect a policy to a need. What is it that the people want? And um, basically in advertising we use a thing called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, um, which is a pyramid of human needs and effective propaganda connects to the lowest point on the pyramid. So we've got self-actualisation at the top, then esteem, love and belonging, safety, and then the survival stuff at the bottom. Now, Medicare, or Mediscare or whatever, connected the Liberal policies on, on Medicare to the fact that your family is at risk, that the health of your family is at risk. It's sort of at the bottom of the um, pyramid. Therefore, it's going to work. Um, I get people come up to me all the time going, I hate negative advertising. Why do you do negative advertising? It wouldn't work on me. Well, <laughs> um, it would, and it does, and that's why we do it. Um, <laughs> swinging voters aren't usually swinging voters because they're deciding who to vote for. They're swinging voters because they could not give a shit. They are the most disengaged people um, that there are out there. And what we know is that um, we're hardwired to notice negativity. And you know if you go to a news site, you click on the bad stuff first. You just do. Um, we're more persuaded by what we'll lose than what we'll gain. And our emotional reaction to loss is as twice as intense as our joy again. Swinging voters vote against something, not for something. Um, the other thing is that um, badness is sticky. You know the old management axiom, give five compliments for every um, one piece of criticism because we actually store bad information um, for longer. It has more impact on us. And attacks can be really fruitful, particularly if you're the underdog. Um, in Australia, we always root for sort of the David over Goliath. Up until about 96, negative campaigns were about 40%, negative ads were about 40% of the campaign. Now sits at about 75, or if you're really badly losing, you whack it up higher. In America, some states sit at about 99% sometimes. But... Negative ads should be interesting. I absolutely firmly believe that. The old days of sort of the droning music and the newspaper clippings and that aren't there anymore. Thanks to the internet, there's more places than ever that people can not pay attention to your stuff. So I always try to make my negative ads um, with humour, if possible, um, or at least with an idea and a little bit of cleverness. We start oh. 2009 in the midst... Sorry, I'm just going to go back before I go into this. I'm just going to play a couple of ads that I think are um, some of the best um, political ads. This one ran in 2009. It's one of the very few ads that have changed an election result. It was done by Neil Lawrence in Queensland. 
Um, the success was that it fed into two existing preconceptions about Springborg. So again, you don't create something out of nothing, you tap into existing stuff. One was that he wasn't leadership material, and two, that he wasn't that bright. And it used the oldest trick in the book. If you sort of have an attack at someone, it can make you look mean. The trick is to let them hang themselves with their own words. We start 2009 in the midst of a crisis unlike any we have seen in our lifetime. We are confronting challenges we never have had to meet before. We are going through the worst financial crisis in our lifetime. The most profound economic emergency since the Great Depression. It's not like the Great Depression. It is not like the hysteria. It is not like a war footing. That is absolute nonsense. It is not even a recession. Just a cracker of an ad. Um, the next ad is a positive ad. Positive ads are so difficult to do because it's hard to put an idea in there. Usually it's the leader talking to camera. As I said before, the broad aims of most political parties are so similar. Um, you know, you want everyone to be healthy, happy, have a good education, that sort of thing. It's the policies that get you there that differentiate the parties, and that's very difficult to portray in an ad. So positive ads are generally blamange. Um, they're out there to set the agenda rather than change votes. But this is one from um, Ronald Reagan in 1984 that is an absolute cracker of a positive ad. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, Nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger, and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? Terrible president, but a bloody great ad. <laughs> this next ad had absolutely no truth to it whatsoever. It's now, swift boating is now a term used in political advertising when you completely destroy someone <laughs> with no substantial claims at all. Um, it completely destroyed Kerry's campaign. Three months after we were married, my husband was shot down over Hanoi. Paul and I were married in 1963. Two years later, he was shot down over North Vietnam. All of the prisoners of war in North Vietnam were tortured in order to obtain Confessions of Atrocities. On the other hand, uh, John Kerry came home and um, accused all Vietnam veterans of unspeakable horrors. John Kerry gave aid and comfort to the enemy by advocating their negotiating points to our government. Why is it relevant? Because John Kerry is asking us to trust him. I will never forget John Kerry's testimony. If we couldn't trust John Kerry then, how could we possibly trust him now? Swift bets and POWs for truth are responsible for the content of this advertisement. He said there was absolutely no truth to that, but when you've got the widow of a war veteran, you're fucked. <laughs> um, the, this next ad 
is so fantastic because it doesn't say anything about policies or anything, but it is done in the Walt Disney Studios. It's scored by Irving Berlin. And it came out of something that happened in focus groups. People didn't want to talk about Eisenhower's policies. They just said, I really like him. And they made a whole campaign based around, I like Ike. Fantastic. <laughs> and then I'm going to play one final ad. Um, it's probably my favourite election ad ever done. Um, it's an ad that has also been credited with an election win, again against that nutty Barry Goldwater by Lyndon Johnson. It worked because it, the fear was real. You couldn't run something like this unless, again, that the feeling is out there in society. It was the height of the Cold War. Hiroshima was fresh in people's minds. Um, it absolutely um, goes down to Maslow's basic needs of survival. Um, the line is, we must love each other or we will die. I think, the most compelling election ad ever made. Um, a final point I, I wanted to make was how important it is that the, who, who the ad comes from. In 2013, the Labor brand was so damaged that we seeded a lot of um, advertising material out through third parties um, because they had more credibility um, than the Labor Party did at the time. And that also goes through normal consumer stuff as well, that uh, people are more likely, 80% more likely to buy something... Um, as a, on the recommendation of a friend than the advertiser. And a lot of what we do now in politics, particularly online, is get supporters to send stuff out um, rather than always just from the party. And also for, we get supporters to create their own content as well, because when people um, create their own content, the buy-in is huge, much bigger than if it's just a simple share or a like. I guess when I get asked, you know, is what you do ethical? Naturally, I'm going to say yes. 
I think in any debate, both sides have not just the right, but actually the responsibility to present their arguments in as compelling a way as possible to garner support, in this case, you know, to garner votes. It's actually a really fundamental part of democracy. And it's actually also entirely reasonable, I think, to use your advertising to point out the weaknesses in your opponent's case, how you think they will damage the country. Um, policy wonks might be good at making policy, but they're often really terrible at selling it. Good policy doesn't sell itself as much as we'd like to think it does, and no one has ever got re-elected by hiding their light under a bushel, which is why I will continue to use whatever skills um, that I have um, to promote or to, to do election advertising, because I actually really firmly believe that a Labor Party will look after the people who need it most, and that's why I do what I do and will continue to do so. Thank you. Thank you, Dee. Now, you all get a chance to ask some questions of Dee. There are microphones in the aisles on both sides down the front. You need to come down to them. A reminder, this session is being filmed, so if you don't want to get caught on camera, don't go and stand in front of the microphone for crying out loud. It's a pretty simple concept. I do love a um, political campaign ad, the gist of which seems to be if your kid's bad at maths, we'll blow them up, which yeah. I, I, I think is a powerful message. We're going to re-badge it for Gonski. Yeah, I, I think it's the perfect way to sell Gonski. <laughs> um, I'm not going to ask if it's ethical, but I am going to ask if it renders us cynical about our political process. The better you get at what you do, the darker the dark arts are, and it's good of you to kind of reveal them to us here. Does it lead to three-word sloganeering? Does it lead to an electorate who don't trust what they're being told anymore? Um, the the three-word sloganing comes from the fact that news, the average length of a news bite, a sound bite on the news now is four seconds. So I actually don't think that's... I think that's more about the news th than the advertisers. I, look, I don't think... So people aren't stupid. They really aren't. And, and, you know, I've sat in enough focus groups to be, you know, that it can depress the hell out of you. But they're not stupid. They can't be tricked into stuff. As I said, there always has to be substance out there. All you're doing is sort of highlighting stuff that you think is, is legitimate. Mm. I mean, seeing the, the Reagan It's Morning in America campaign, and of course, Romney tried to reappropriate that a few years ago, and got within one turn of the news cycle, it was revealed that the footage he was using was Toronto rather than America, and, uh, and it all got undercut, because there was a savvy... In you've terms you've of got how to be careful on that. I know, like, say, with the Liberal Party of fake tradie, I did say there's no way he's a fake tradie because they're not that stupid. And, and, and I know that as soon as you put an ad on, there are people out there who'll look for kind of something like that in there um, that they can use. So we're always super careful if it's a school shot to make sure it's an Australian school and whatever. You sort of, you know, you go through everything quite carefully. At what point when you're doing something like this or writing the book or doing Gruen, do you feel like you're showing too much of your hand, though? I, look, I don't. I, I have no problems with people understanding what we do. I, I think, you know, because I actually don't believe I'm tricking people, so I'm really happy for them to know exactly how I'm doing it and what I'm doing it and why I'm doing it. Hmm. All right. Well, we're going to take a question over here first because no-one's gone to that microphone. Cowardly side of the room, brave side of the room. <laughs> you need to understand that. I don't want to be divisive, but keep that in mind. <laughs> we'll start over here with this gentleman. Thank you, and thank you, Dee, for a fascinating talk. I wonder if I can ask briefly two things that may or may not be related. The first one, uh, Australian elections. I've always been of the understanding that the Australian electorate throws out governments. They don't elect oppositions. So how does that... 
is do you think that and how does that impact your advertising? And the other thing is, totally differently in America, you don't so much have to get somebody to vote for you as to get them to vote. Yep. So. Yep. Th those. Um, generally, as I said, swinging voters are more likely to vote against something, so they are more likely to throw out a government. The the only um, um, point on that, though, is sometimes if a government has been in for three years or something, the mood for change can actually mean people will embrace a new government and actually vote for a new government. I think it's time. I think Kevin 07, because they didn't know him, they you know, thought he might be nice. Um, so, so I think there are times in the election cycle where people will vote for a government, but most of the time swinging voters are voting against something, not for something. And yes, in America, because they don't have compulsory voting, they have two jobs, which, and one of which is to get people um, to show up. Which, and I know people get cross at our compulsory voting, but thank God we have it, I think. Now, I don't want to play the part of counsellor here, but just ignore the cameras, ignore the people in the room. Did Kevin Rudd hurt you, Dee? <laughs> I'm still vaguely traumatised by that man. Yes. Yeah, no, it, it shows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Clearly a deep... Yeah. So is the nation. Yeah, we are. So there's that. There's another question over here. Hi, uh, my name's Ella. I'm a media and communications student at the University of Sydney, and my question relates kind of broadly to advertising, in particular political advertising, in regards to young people. Um, through my studies, I've noticed that we are a particularly cynical generation, and a lot of our media consumption is particularly passive. Um, I guess two things. Firstly, how would you go about tackling a political advertisement generated at young people? And secondly, what do you think the power of social media is looking towards the future? Um, it, the difference with, say, anyone under 25 is almost not watching commercial TV, so you tackle it in a completely different way. I think the trick is not to talk down and try to be youthful, because, you know, young people see through that, to treat them like they are sensible people. But young people in particular like creating their own content, so if you can come up with ideas that allow that, that tends to be very effective. Um, oh, and I've completely forgotten the second point, and I just want to say something on that. What was, sorry, what, can social you... Social media? Oh, social media, yep. Okay. Depends on which kind of platform. So things like um, Twitter and even Snapchat, you tend to self-select your audience, so you can be in a little bit of a vacuum of people who already think and feel like you do, which is why with politics we tend to use Facebook more than anything else, only because if you look at your Facebook friends, it's a far broader group because you've got family, you've got people you work with and went to school with, so it's a politically broader group. So it means that the opportunities to get outside the vacuum are far greater, whereas with a lot of the other platforms, they're just so insulated that you end up sort of people just talking to themselves. We know that um, worthy, positive stuff gets shared am amongst like-minded people, but if you can create stuff that is humorous, but that works particularly well for younger voters as well. But also you just make sure, and the great thing with social media is you can do this, um, you make sure it's issues based on stuff that's relevant to them. So, and it's, um, you can also geo-target, which we do a lot of. With Facebook, we can buy now within... You, you probably don't even want to know how much information we have about people on Facebook, but we can buy in five-kilometre um, blocks and we can probably even micro-target within that, um, which means if you're looking at your data really well, people should be seeing only stuff that's completely relevant to them. And if you ever answer anything online, we've got your IP. Do not understand why Facebook thinks I want a new couch so badly. 
Googled it. There was a fantastic um, uh, case in England where this old MP said, it's awful, all these political ads are appearing on porn sites. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you understand how this works, but thank you for letting us know. <laughs> Does social media, how has it changed the game in terms of, part of that question was about it's passive media consumption versus active? Um, well, in a way, it's not as passive. TV was far more passive because you didn't get, you, you know, there wasn't a response. It was purely sort of, you know, someone sitting there and watching, whereas social media works if you get people to actually engage with the ad, you know, whether they like it, whether they share it. So in some ways, it allows a lot more active um, and also it allows us to micro-target. Before, you kind of had to choose your three main issues because all your budget went into TV and it had to be something that had a really broad appeal. Now, increasingly, the budget, I think it was 20% last federal election. I'd say this time it was probably 30%. I know in Northern Territory, or mind you, $50 on Facebook advertising can pretty much cover the Northern Territory. But <laughs> it means you micro-target your campaign. So it means that an issue that is relevant to young people can go to young people, whereas before, you'd probably almost have dropped that off just because you didn't have the money to do separate TV campaigns for that. There was that case earlier this week of the video that went viral of the hawk dropping the snake on the picnic in yeah, and it was, yeah. And it was revealed that it was made by an agency called The Woolshed and it was partly funded by Screen Australia. And the, it was for Hawthorne Football Club in the AFL and it was supposed to promote that they were on the attack come the final season. Um, how important is authenticity when it comes to making a political ad cut through? It is really, really important. And things like that tend to backfire because people don't like being tricked. Um, there's these ads, that we call them the whinging Wendy ads. And there was, you know, the woman chopping, chopping vegetables, talking to the camera about her concerns with Australia. And the Labor Party tends to trot it out every election um, because it's supposed to be a real person. I'm increasingly cynical about how the public views that because they know it's, you know tends to be an actor. But the reason we use actors in ads is because real people are really terrible at playing real people. <laughs> so there's that. So unconvincing. I know. Uh, there's one over here, I think. A real person, I mean, <laughs> not a... And I'm terrible at playing myself. Um, OK, so uh, I get that in the current climate, if you have to use these methods, because if you didn't do it, the other side would, and they'd succeed. But I'm wondering, because I still believe that perhaps tricking people and using their biases against them perhaps isn't the best thing to do and that perhaps there is a better way. And I think one way to do this might be to actually change the system in such a way, and I have no idea how to do this, but it's in such a way that if you do trick people, they're aware of it and they immediately get upset about it and so that the um, playing field gets levelled and then authentic, truthful statements. I still believe that such a thing as the truth does exist as much as people might say that it really doesn't. There's many perspectives. I think we are moving towards it. And I have a question about, have you ever thought about an, a future in which that kind of advertising might actually be the best kind of advertising and how to bring that about? You vote greens, don't you? <laughs> I was prepared for a snarky response. <laughs> um, I don't think that what I do is trick people. I, I'm, I'm absolutely aware that I have a bias, but I, I believe that, um, that ideology is worth fighting for, and democracy has always had really robust fights, and that actually is really important. I, I, I don't believe we'll ever... I just, As I said, it's actually pointing out the faults of your opponent is just as important 
as showcasing your positive stuff. It's part of the political debate. It always will be, and I actually think it's a really healthy thing. I'm interested... I mean, you ended your talk by talking about why you work for the Labor Party. You're not a, an ad maker for hire. No. You're doing it for a cause you believe yeah. in, and yeah. that seems an important distinction to me, even if there's some dispute over methodology or whatever. Having said that, you actually have to be really pragmatic about it. I remember once hiring someone for a campaign who was, a, a, you know, rose-coloured glasses sort of thing. She's like, we just need to tell people out west that Tony Abbott's going to get rid of the carbon tax. It's like, but they, the people out west think getting rid of it's a good idea. So you actually have to be, even though I'm Labor I'm incredibly pragmatic about what needs to be done, um, you know, and, and you have to be, you, you have to take off the, uh, the rose-coloured glasses and remember that as much as there are issues that might be important to me, to someone sitting out west who's struggling to pay their mortgage, you know, put food on the table and that, politics sits right down there and for a whole lot of really good reasons, which is, again, why the entertainment factor is so important because they're not obliged to watch what you do. You have to, you know, make an effort, I think, to engage their attention. So what happens, though, when the party or the cause disappoints you? Oh, you well, know, when you've signed up for a campaign? Oh, I quit the Labor Party in my mid-30s for, you know, that reason. And, um, but then I realised you, you're not going to agree with everything any party does, but I figured... I've got more chance of changing it from the inside than the outside. Cool. Other question over here. Hi. Um, perhaps a mixture between passive TV and social media, especially for my generation, is something like satire, especially in America with Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert. However, in the recent election, obviously they haven't been there to kind of comment on the election. And I know that you said people aren't stupid, but people, you know, do support Donald Trump. And that's because of his <laughs> campaign, Make America Better. How do you think that he's managed to convince such a large portion of America using this one simple statement? And why do you think it's worked so well? Well, I think it's starting to not work well, which is, thank God. Um, but it's the same with the Pauline Hanson voters. It's, it's tapping into these people who feel that they've been hard done by and someone must be to blame. Um, and it's, it's the government, it's the Asians, it's the Muslims, it's anyone but yourself. And it kind of, and that, that's exactly what that taps into, that sort of, you know, disenfranchised voters. Um, then, and the way to beat it, the only way to beat that. And I'm a big fan, actually, of making... People say, well, we should just not make fun of Pauline. It's like, no, 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 don't make fun of her voters, but make fun of her heaps, um, because she deserves it, um, is actually to point out, and, and they're doing this in America as well, that, that those policies, actually, the policies they have don't do anything to help working-class people. They don't have policies to help you with jobs. They don't have policies to help you with cost of living. And that's the best way to sort of counteract that. And um, the good thing with Donald Trump... <laughs> is that I think it will motivate voters to turn up because he is such a terrifying prospect. Can I ask, beyond Trump, maybe Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn are better examples of it, why is there the rise of the self-professed anti-establishment candidate? Is that that kind of... We hear again and again about distrust and dissatisfaction with the major parties, but is that another way of saying they're sick of the propaganda machine? They're sick of the spin? Again, I don't know that they're sick of the spin. They're just sick of probably the politics. And I think spin is, is, is only is part of that. I think, you know, I think we're living in a society where we, we're expecting more from things. We, we, we have these sort of 
perfectly curated feeds on Facebook. We have these idealised notions of what things should be. It used to be, if you look at our political cycle, that we'd give even bad governments a, a second term. But now we're much more volatile as voters, and that's, I think, affecting the way things are. I think also the fact is that maybe 20, 30 years ago, there wasn't so many swinging voters. And it is... The, I mean, some of... Most swinging voters, as I said, are disengaged, but then there's the ones who are... Um, engaged but cynical. Whereas, say, 30, 40 years ago, you grew up in the family that you were in, you voted a certain way, and that kind of didn't change for your whole life. And that's changed significantly now. In the 2010 election, 20% of voters were making up their minds as they walked into the voting booth who to vote for. And, that, and so I think the rise of the swinging voter has just changed the cycle dramatically. As someone who votes below the line, that distresses me so much. Uh, look, I, does it? I used to do that, vote, just because it was always that thing of, oh, do you put Fred and I last or family first? It was kind of that thing. <laughs> but um, now with three kids, honestly, it's just, you just want to get in and out sort of quicker. And it's, it's got... That's the only quiet time I get on a Saturday. <laughs> oh. See, I normally have children around my... Um, thing. And also there's so many, you know, there's so many parties there yeah. now. Yeah, no, no, I don't know what any of them do. <laughs> Quite literally any of them. Uh, over this side. Yeah, my question is, if you were running a campaign on one climate change and two asylum seekers, what frame would you take to invoke, I guess, disengage, but also people that are totally against either of those causes? Um, you, can't, you can't change people's minds a lot of the time. And this is, I think, a really important thing to note, and we don't, we'd like to think that we could, and particularly with climate change, well, we'll give them the facts and that's going to change their mind, it won't. And in fact, it actually will cement the position of the disbelievers more because they don't hear, they're not hearing you, they're, they're listening to you in defence and they're actually, um, wait, you know, they, they've, got, they've got all the answers to those, you know, with their tinfoil hats. So there's some things that you can't change. The climate change is so disappointing because we actually had public consensus of it from both parties and from the public. But when you shelve the greatest moral challenge of our time, you start to earn voter distrust in spades. Um, you know, and the Labor Party did a terrible job of selling... You know, they sold climate change as an economic policy. Their last climate change ad just didn't mention the environment in it, so it looked tricky and rightfully... You know, it was... It, that's actually been a problem of, I think, the Labor Party's own making climate change because it actually should have been very, very easy. And now it is so loaded with politics that we almost need to just sort of step back from it, leave it for a little bit and then go back at it again later, I think probably in two or three years' time. Because at the moment, you've got the right wing of the Liberal Party who are controlling the Liberal Party at the moment and it's just not going to get up um, until the moderate side get back control of the party. An asylum oh, seeker oh, refugee policy? Oh, I, um, Go on, we've got five minutes, to, we'll solve it. If you had to sell it to them, if you had to. I, this, actually, when I say focus groups are generally, you know, you hear good things. Asylum seekers is just awful, sitting in Western Sydney focus groups um, during the 2013 election. And it's, they just come here and they get, you know, more money than we do when they're on the dole and they get this and they get... You know, it's just, you know, the, the, the misinformation out there is so awful. And what it is, it's, it's racism. It's absolute racism. But no-one wants to say that they don't want people coming because they've got the wrong skin colour. So they come up with all these economic bullshit arguments. Um, but equally, the the thought of so many people dying at sea when we had just an open doors policy is also really, really awful as well. So the answer, there is no easy solution. 
So you, it makes it almost impossible to sell. I couldn't touch it. I wouldn't know how to start, and that's the honest truth. I've, I've thought about that a million times, and I don't know what the answer is. So if I don't know what the answer is, I don't know how to sell it. Thank you. There's another question on this side over here. Um, we've heard from kind of the Liberal Party that they're committing to like a... Uh, we, they think we can have a respectful debate if this plebiscite gets through this kind of bullshit Senate that we have. Um, as an ad person, do you have any kind of opinion on whether that's even possible and under what circumstances it would be respectful to both sides? <laughs> uh, well, look, I'm, 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 I'm doing the PFLAG campaign against the plebiscite, um, so I'm not obviously unbiased on that either. Um, <laughs> My concern with it being non-binding is that even if it goes through, again, the right-wing um, Bernardi sector have got control of the Liberal Party. I do not believe that even a plebiscite um, will necessarily be honoured, which is why I'm so against it. Um, it's such a fucking waste of money. Um, and they know the public support for it is there. Um, it means next year we will be going to vote three times, probably. We've got the Indigenous recognition thing. We'll have the plebiscite and, you know, and I think there's one other thing as well. Um, so I don't see how it will be a respectful debate because nothing the Australian Christian lobby has ever put out has even vaguely been respectful. I don't see how that's going to change. It's, you know, it's, it's unnecessary, it's hurtful and it's horrible. That... That said, I would watch a sitcom called This Bullshit Senate, which would be, <laughs> which would be hilarious. And in fact, I'm going to have the chance over the next few years. With something like the plebiscite, do we get... Does spin, does the propaganda machine encourage a kind of tit-for-tat in terms of uh, voices and perspectives being heard? I should be allowed to have put up my yes case for the plebiscite. I should be able to put up my no. Do we have this... Horrible well, relativism creeping well, in? Yes, and what, what it's saying is that both sides are valid. And I think there are cases where both sides aren't valid. It's like the vaccination debate. No, there's some debates you actually shouldn't have because one side actually doesn't have the right to say those kinds of things. Not all debates are OK because not all opinions are valid. I, you know, I, I really don't believe that. Um, you know, we don't have debates on vaccination. We shouldn't have debates over whether some people have rights that other people don't have. It's, 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 not, an, it's, not, it's not a debate that should be hosted by a civilised country. But how do you grapple with that when facts are boring? When people have only so many seconds that they're going to listen to you. So you can't say, just listen to the bloody scientists on vaccination, on climate change, listen to the human rights experts. How do you cut through in a world where you have to be increasingly punchy? Well, I would say our new our PFLAG campaign puts an idea in it where we've got Malcolm Turnbull at the altar and it's, you know, do you, will you promise to, you know, um, take the um, results of the plebiscite foregoing any other more politically expedient... Um, so basically putting humour and an idea into something. So wrapping the facts around something but in a way that is engaging and humorous, which is, again, how you do propaganda best. When it comes to engaging and humorous and also thoughtful, I am very glad to have Dean Madigan working the propaganda machine. Please join me in thanking her today. Thank you. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.